The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. I'm your host, Mahesh. With me today, I have my Oxford cohort, JR, James Klein. He's the principal of JR Global, and he also serves as the CEO Emeritus of Finance Fund in Ohio, USA. He is an expert in developing social impact community development financial institutions, Uh, These institutions move public and private capital into low-income communities to improve the quality of life for people. Our topic of discussion today is the global business in current digital age. Very important and relevant topic as of today. Welcome, Jair. Mahesh, it's good to be back. Uh, Good to be here and having some discussions on some very interesting topics this whole idea of uh, a a digital economy and a digital uh, revolution is uh, very poignant and a great place to start today. Thank you, JR. And uh, JR, as you see, the world has changed rapidly around us. Just to give you some reference points and how quickly we are changing and, and what are the socio-economic factors affecting our lives. Let's start with that. The world population was 2.5 billion in 1950. It is 7.5 billion today. Big, big increase. In 1950, there were only 60 six zero member states in the United Nations. It has now increased to 193. The tripling of nation states has also brought along the growth in the number of massive trade channels. They're trading with each other. They're available to each nation. And the result is that the volume of trade has increased from approximately $62 billion in 1950 to a whopping $19 trillion today. That's a huge increase. And above all, we have all moved from industrial age to digital age since then. So today, uh, we'll be touching several topics impacting the global business in digital age. Let me start with why global trade is so important. Then we move to the digital part of it. So what does it do and how does it help? Well, 
it helps in uh, reduction in extreme poverty, increase in labor standards across the world. It uh, provides greater access to consumer goods. It facilitates cultural exchange. And it provides a reduction, uh, I would say reduction as well as improvement in cost of living. Uh, may not be that much improvement, but definitely a reduction. Keeping in mind that how many people are below, still below the poverty line in the world. And it could be a cause for relative global peace. Because the criteria of conflict would be overpowered by some of the economic parameters. Now, looking at the world today, China is the world's largest exporter of goods, almost $2.2 trillion. And uh, U.S. is the largest exporter uh, at 2.3, sorry, largest importer. China is exporter, U.S. is importer. And this has been the true outcome of global business, which has been facilitated by what you call the interconnection of the world and seamless communication which would not have been possible without the information technology. Now, what is the impact of digital economy? Now, a study was conducted by World Bank JR and what it says is that if there is a 10% increase in broad, broadband penetration, it results in 1.38% increase in growth in developing countries and a 1.21% increase in growth in developed countries. Now that's the power of internet, pure internet. Now what are the additional advantages of international trade? Why it's so important for our society? Well, it kind of provides us optimal use of natural resources. It helps each country to make optimum use of its natural resources. Each country can concentrate on production of those goods for which its resources are best suited. And wastage of resource is avoided. What you don't have, you can buy from somewhere. And uh, the international trade uh, creates availability of all types of goods. Uh, it enables a country to obtain goods which it cannot produce or which it is not able to produce due to high cost. They can import it from other countries at a better cost. It also helps in specialization. You know, it encourages production of different goods in different countries where it is it is most suited for, where you have the talent, where you have the resources. And the goods can be produced at a comparatively low cost due to advantage or division of labor because of specialization. Another major advantage is the large-scale production. Now, due to international trade, goods are produced not only for home consumption, now you're producing for export to the rest of the world too. And the uh, nation of the world can dispose of goods with the having surplus in the international market. Now your market is not limited to your physical and geographical boundaries of the country. Now, this leads to production at large scale. An advantage large scale production can be obtained by all the countries in the world. Yeah, and Mahesh, uh, that also leads to uh, another piece that I think is is very interesting. For anyone that's ever traveled uh, a lot around the world, this sort of international trade uh, has has uh, has changed fairly dramatically from a time that you saw really wild fluctuations in pricings 
uh, around the world, you s- uh, part of the difference is that there's been a real stability in pricing of, of, of primary products and services around the world uh, because of uh, this sort of egalitarian effect uh, of uh, globalization. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. And JR, also, it facilitates exchange of technical know-how and it allows new industries to come up. Let's take an example of underdeveloped countries. They can establish and develop new industries with the machinery, equipment and technical know-how which they don't have but they can import. They can buy, they can, they can source from developed countries. This helps in the development of these countries and the economy of the world at large because they contribute to the global economy. And uh, it also creates an international competition. The producers in a country will try to produce better quality goods and add the minimum possible cost. Now, this will eventually increase efficiency and benefits to the consumers all across the world, not only in that country. And uh, if you look at what else international trade has provided, since the, the goods are moving across the world, it has created best means of transport and communication. You know, and also it has created a phenomenal amount of uh, simplified cooperation and understanding of each other's business. People now appreciate other situation much better because they are in contact with each other. And, and, and the commercial interactions amongst nations of the world, uh, it, it definitely encourages exchange of ideas. It creates exchange of cultures. You're learning new cultures as you're getting exposed to it. So you also, you also, uh, uh, what follows that is, is sort of the ability to uh, be able to uh, face certain situations uh, quicker and better because you have this kind of uh, cooperation. I'm thinking, I'm thinking about some of the natural disasters, some of the calamities that happen around the world, where uh, this. uh, the responses to that are much more effective uh, and uh, and assistance flows usually much sooner because of uh, this sort of uh, international uh, connection. Exactly, exactly. And I would say that the biggest advantage of international trade is, as you rightly pointed out, the calamities and and, and all the all the adversities can be solved much better. Uh, beyond that, I would say that uh, it, it is it is not out of place to say it is contributing to international peace and uh, better standard of living. Now, well, when we talk about international trade, you know um, we can get fixated on products when it comes to discussing trade and exports. Yes, definitely, export uh, services are critically important and growing component of international trade. These needs to be kept in view because services are equally important as are the products. If you look at the export services, they generated almost uh, close to $5 trillion in global sales in year 2014. Uh, Yes, definitely, uh, the products export uh, or trade was way higher. It was probably... Uh, three and a half times of that. Now, if you look at the developed countries, many of them, like United States and Canada, 
they have almost transitioned into service economies. So it makes sense that those and other countries are now selling some of those services on international market. They are not remaining within their boundaries. And, uh, uh, and, and knowing which global service are most in demand can help researchers uncover international business opportunities. You can find new, new services which you can provide. And, and, and that's the beauty of international trade now. Well, let me quickly share with you the, what are the world's top export services? You know, the top five are travel services at number one, and then comes the miscellaneous business services, transport, and then financial, and the fifth one is telecommunication and computer services. So uh, there is a lot happening on uh, the international trade. In the, there is a lot people can do, lot countries can do, companies can do. It is not only the products, there are services. So a uh, lot of connectivity for individuals, governments, countries, at all levels you can see. And uh, key is the information age which has provided it. Yeah, in and, other and, words, the digital age and digital economy. Yeah, and, and one of the things you see when you look at those kinds of numbers, you see that the percentage of services uh, that uh, uh, their percentage of export sales uh, has been climbing, has been increasing. So services becoming a bigger piece of export. Right, right. You're very right, Jay. There. Yeah, we're going to take a short break now, and uh, we will be back shortly. back. You are listening to Global Business with Mahesh Yoshi. We have with us JR today discussing the global business in digital age. Welcome JR, welcome back. It's uh, good to be back. You know, you know at, at the end of this uh, last session we were talking about sort of the changes in in, uh, in uh, global economies based upon digitization. Uh, tell me, what do you think do you think we can, uh, this digital age uh, allows us to sort of abandon some of the, uh, some of the other elements uh, of, uh, age, uh, of an age that isn't quite as digital? Uh, for example, can, can we do without oil and gas? Well, that's a very good question, JR. You know, well, and I'll be quoting here that as per Telegraph in, in the UK, the publication, oil is both the lifeblood and poison of the global economy. And how important is oil and gas for the economy, especially remaining in digital economy? That's a very good question. Let's look at it. Uh, 
Oil is a basic feedstock or energy source for much of today's economic prosperity. No doubt about it. Yeah. Oil remains the lifeblood of most gainful economic activity. There's no chance of that changing in the forcible feature. You know, and without oil, you see what you can't do. You can't operate a modern military and you can't run a modern economy. Modern civilization probably would collapse in a matter of months if oil stopped flowing. Oil is about as important to the developed world as is agriculture. It is truly a condition for the continued existence of most of the humanity today. We can't do without it. And you know, uh, what are the main drivers? Population and income are the key drivers behind growing demand for energy in future. You know, the world's population is projected to increase from 7.3 billion today to reach nearly 8.8 .8 billion by 2035. And they all need oil and gas. They need to keep things moving. You know, well, let's look at it. Let's look at it as the population is growing. Who benefits? What do you think, JR? Who benefits the most from cheap oil? Well, I, I, I think the answer is not uh, is not one, but is probably the the two Asian giants. I would consider India and China, uh, who are among the biggest uh, global importers of oil. India, for example, uh, with a projected growth rate of more than about seven point five percent. Yeah, is all set to grow more than China as per the IMF and the World Bank. China or, or India is the fourth largest consumer of oil in the world with more than three million barrels of oil per day. Uh, it imports uh, around 80% of its total crude oil requirement. Uh, with with uh, current oil prices, India's import bill and current account deficit uh, have reduced with that uh, downturn in price. As, uh, as per India's current finance minister, the, the country might even achieve a current account surplus. Which that's, is, a, that's a big achievement for them. Which is very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, China uh, is the world's largest importer. Uh, it's, it's poised to have a growth rate of around 7% uh, in 2016, according to the Asian Development Bank. As, as per the EIA, uh, China is, is currently the biggest consumer of crude oil after the United States, and its crude import averages uh, average at about... 6.2 million barrels per day, which means that cheap oil would hugely benefit the Asian giant in, in reducing its import bills. Much, much like India, even China's exports, much of its refined products to the global market, both, both China and India are cashing in on this cheap oil. That is true. And you know, uh, I fully realize and there are all indication digital age is there. Information technology has taken deep roots. But uh, uh, some of the conventional businesses will still remain there to support the economy. And another region of the, of the globe which has a major role to play in global business, I think is Africa with its vast resources. 
You know, it's a very important part of global economy. If you look at population, 1.1 billion. Look at the GDP of Africa, 2.4 trillion. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, look at look at what what they produce in the minerals. And if you look at just the top 10, oil and gas, gold, diamond, copper, coal, platinum, uranium, aluminum, bauxite, iron, steel, you name it, they have it. And Africa has abundance of natural resources which supports the global economy. The continent ranks as the world's number one in its reserves of bauxite, chromites, cobalt, diamonds and gold. It is rich in, 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 in minerals like palladium phosphates, platinum group metals, titanium minerals, vanadium, and zircon. And you know, the African production accounts for almost world's uh, 80% platinum group of metals, almost uh, 55% for chromites and palladium, probably 49% of the global production comes from there, and almost 45% of vanadium and more than half of gold and diamonds. Now, these are very important for modern equipment being used in digital economy. And, uh, well, yeah, it, it's pretty interesting to look at after looking at what Africa is providing in terms of minerals and raw material. What's happening with emerging markets? What's your thought on that? Well, it, it's uh, it, it's very uh, a very interesting uh, idea of how uh, sort of the old pieces of the economy are still so important uh, and how this change to more of a digital world uh, is important. And one of the places I think it is most important is in emerging markets. The the importance of this uh, is is evident. I'm going to uh, I'm going to give you a little piece of a speech by Christine Langard, uh, the managing director for the International Monetary Fund. Uh, she in February of this year uh, at the University of Maryland gave a little speech, and she basically said, "Let's consider all the possible connections with the emerging market in the first 30 minute of a student's life at the university." Okay. She said, let's assume it's 7 a.m. and the alarm goes off on your Chinese-made smartphone. On the way to the shower, uh, you send a WhatsApp uh, message uh, to your uh, TA. Uh, WhatsApp, of course, was founded by a Ukrainian computer engineer. A few minutes later, your roommate has also woken up uh, with a third of... University of uh, Maryland uh, graduate students being international students, there's a good chance that uh, she may be FaceTiming with her relatives in India. At 7.15 a.m., you're facing a really tough choice between strong coffee from Kenya and a milder variety out of Colombia. You switch on your Bluetooth speaker made in Malaysia uh, to listen to the news, uh, overnight, uh, global stock markets were rattling by the Chinese, the latest Chinese economic data, uh, which uh, has put a dent in your mom's 401k savings plan. Uh, you worry about spring bake in Mexico. Luckily, as you head out to a field trip in a zip car made in Korea, you realize that the low oil demand and strong 
supply from emerging markets have also brought down gas prices. Wow. As you <laughs> contemplate these first minutes of your day, you realize that the center of economic gravity has been slowly shifting. Yes, the United States is still the most important economic economy in the world, but New York, Chicago, L.A. have gotten company from Beijing uh, uh, to uh, Brasilia, from Moscow to Mumbai, from Jakarta to Johannesburg. <laughs> so, wow. so will will these emerging markets dominate? Do you think the the global economy in this new age? I think so. I think so. I think uh, you made you made a reference to center of economic gravity. You know, Danny Kua at the London School of Economics, and he he has written some articles in a book on the shifting center of gravity of global economy. You know what he says? He supports what you just said. In 1980, the global uh, economy center of gravity was mid-Atlantic. By 2008, from the continuing rise of China and rest of East Asia, the center of gravity has moved. It's it's it was located in 2008, close to east of Helsinki and Bucharest. And if you look at the growth happening in the digital age, if you extrapolate almost 700 location across Earth. It gives you an idea that world's economic center of gravity is shifting, uh, and it's it's going towards India and China. And by 2050, it'll be somewhere in between the two. You know, mm. and um, mm-hmm. a few other pointers which I would like to share with you. What McKinsey and Company says: By 2025, consuming class will grow to 4.2 billion in emerging markets with annual consumption of uh, 30 trillion dollars. the biggest growth opportunity in the history of capitalism so that's the role of emerging markets and uh, if you look at even currently the leading companies in the developed world earn 17% of total revenue from emerging markets even though the market represents 36% of global gdp here is an opportunity as their purchasing power improves and uh, If you look at in between um, uh, in the 20 years between 1980 and 2000, 5% of the world 500 largest companies were from emerging markets, and now it's climbed to 45%. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, emerging markets will have a major role. Now, beyond that, you know, another piece which is going to have a major role to play is the financing. You know, if you look at the financing, uh, how it's changing in digital era. The rise of global finance market has brought about both wealth and risk to almost every part of the world, and it has changed considerably, considerably from industrial era to digital era. Now we have fintech, crowdfunding, startup company financing, which was unheard of in uh, industrial economy. The new ways of payment, bitcoins, Apple Pay, PayPal. So. the interdependence of global business is making global financial markets pretty volatile too and and the shift in center of gravity of economic power toward asia and the geopolitics is also impacting financial markets there are a lot of cross border money activity and there are currency uh, uh, fluctuations they all have a role to play and if you look at most of the countries are playing are not playing they're competing on taxes to attract businesses in global economy to their geographies 
you know it's it's becoming very evident and um, if you look at globalization has resulted in greater interconnectedness definitely among markets around the world uh, increased communication awareness of business opportunities in every corner of the globe you can find out there are more investors who can access new investment opportunities study new markets without being there they they can do it at a great distance on internet on some other forms of communication and the potential risk and profit opportunities are within easier reach thanks to the improved communication so the financial services in the digital age will have a major role to play that's another important factor beyond the role of emerging markets the africa and other pieces jr we're going to take a short break and we'll be back shortly Back. You are listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. We have with us JR, and we are discussing the global business in digital age. JR, let's move next to the disruption in traditional business model with technology. You know what has happened now is in digital age, some of the successful industrial era companies have been replaced by startups, and there have, there have been quite a few in past decade. Like simple, the bookstores have been replaced by Amazon. and you know taxis have been replaced by uber newspaper by social media retail stores are being replaced by e-commerce so the businesses now face a very different set of problems as compared to the the 20th century as individuals around the world are very well connected you know the cost of entry for new businesses has reduced tremendously the speed to reach new customers as well as suppliers it has increased in the same ratio the intensity of competition is magnified it is not only confined to a regional state now it's coming from everywhere across the planet and uh, the other phenomena which has fueled the growth in innovation and and created a massive unicorn club is the startup culture in silicon valley that's the prime example uh, it's spreading all across with startup ecosystem providing new strategies structures of innovation they are driving disruption and this may force a large scale restructuring in the existing corporate structure in future now that's a major disruption one is you're getting new innovation getting new products here the new innovations the new ways of doing business can make the existing industry 
or rather force them to think very, very differently and, and, and abandon the existing corporate structures and do something new. Yeah, and, and I will add to that, you know, the, the, the very idea that we've been talking about, about the dissemination of, of technology, not only into just emerging markets, but into every corner of uh, the global market is really, uh, is really causing a, a, a very disruptive effect on those, those sort of accepted models that we've always used. Right, right. Hey, look at USA. USA has seen economic growth and increase in employment in the past decade from technology companies. Well, the major contributors are companies like Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, Google, etc. You know, I guess Apple also, if you count them in, in the recent race also they came uh, way back in the late 90s, but in the last 10 years they had major impact. You know, the magnitude of the impact of startups can be seen that in in in, 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 in the U.S. GDP, they are contributing close to $1 trillion, you know. And uh, in, in, if you see the factors which have supported the explosion in startups and the success of startups, amazing, you know. Like startups don't need a large investment to start. Product development is, is reduced. And you, can, you, can, you can outsource even technology development. And, and beyond that, most important point, VC funding, the venture capital funding is very important. They are willing to make several small bets instead of, you know, um, they, they would rather prefer a lot of several bets, uh, a large number of them, instead of one large bet. I'm saying. So they, they are also spreading their, their risk. And uh, there's a new way to manage the business. The information age startups do not behave as a smaller version of large corporation. They don't set up the organization structure like that. You know, they start very lean and they evolve in an environment which is changing. So they are very open to a change. And also another major factor is that the ease which with, with which you can access global technology and take it to customers. You know, customers, users, manufacturers or, or, or I would say the suppliers of products and services, they're all willing to adapt new technologies. That is enabling a very fast growth of startups. Now, startups, no doubt, have given beyond money, they have given a lot of other stuff off. They've given new technologies, new processes, systems, products, services, they created employment, look at the concept of Uber, Airbnb, they're creating shared economies, jobs for everybody, age is not a criteria, they provide flexibility, companies like Uber, quality and ease of service to users. And where are they, they, they are providing driver partners also flexibility who can work at their time frame. And uh, the, the benefits which are coming from startup are immense. Another one is that startups create an environment of innovation and competition in the market. The new ideas come into play and uh, there's a dynamism in the economy because of that. And it has created clusters of expertise. Look at Silicon Valley. It has become a, 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 such a hotbed of innovation. Look at Bangalore. Look at Tel Aviv. You know, and these are also impacting the society and the, and the cities where they take roots. Like what Google did to Mountain View, what Microsoft did to Redmond, and what Infosys did to Bangalore. They all helped it to develop. And uh, 
uh, I would like to refer to a study by Kaufman, you know, which said that the net job creation in USA was positive in past three decades. You know why? Because of the contribution of startups, mm. at least in 75% of the time. On That's in the last three decades, JR. And on average during the period, this period of last three decades, industrial era companies had negative job growth. In the 21st century business, they are dealing with major strategic issues. The performance of firms is declining and the average life of the S&P is already down to 15 years from 65 years in 1990. That's a major change. And that's where you see the startups are coming in and especially in information technology, technological era, technological areas and in digital economy. That's what is driving the growth and making the life easy. It's making comfortable, creating jobs, creating money. So that's all positive coming out from the digital economy. Now, Jar, I, I would like to to have your thoughts on what do you think how global business is impacting local communities and uh, what's the role of inclusive capitalism in global business in this digital era? Well, that's a, that's that's really a good question. As a matter of fact, it really fits into what you're saying about uh, changing of thinking and changing of business models. You know, the influence of uh, uh, of globalization really is driven uh, by some dramatic changers. Uh, uh, one of those blinding flashes of the obvious uh, is that those those changes were really uh, predictable and are really quite evident. Uh, the main one is is technology itself. The advances in technology have led. Uh, to the current uh, global grid driven by one thing, and that's information. And information technology is a strong force that continues to enhance communications in all sectors. That, that you know, you and I have talked about this before. This the primary mission of business really is to provide solutions, and technology has exploded the opportunity and, and market for applications of those so solutions. One of the clear aspects of globalization has been driven toward, has been the drive toward international commerce. Uh, that, that's the whole sort of envelope that we're talking inside. Uh, businesses are, are virtually interlinked, uh, causing a powerful force in the form of a market without borders. Uh, globalization is, is a process by which also people and communities come to experience an increasingly, this is important, increasingly common economic and social cultural environment. We are, we are, we maintain our own cultures, but because of the dissemination of information, we understand what is happening in other parts of the world all at the same time. There's, there's a, there's, there's a strong argument in that, uh, that, uh, the primary driver of those changes uh, are technology. You know, uh, I'm going to say that I, believe the the future belongs to machines <laughs> more uh, more than a, a billion smartphones have been shipped this year uh, wow, several wow. million smart watches and fitness monitors of various sorts uh, they'll be worn but if predictions about the so-called 
Internet of Things, the, the IoT, are right, the number of unmanned computing devices that populate the world connected over wired and, and wireless uh, networks eventually will dwarf the number of devices that people carry around with them. Um, market research from, uh, from Gartner predicts that the tally of network-connected devices, most of them not manipulated by a person, will soar to about, from about 3 billion to about 25 billion in just the next seven years. It's, it, it, it's also my belief that the next blinding flash of the obvious will be the egalitarian effect of, of those changes. All, all disciplines are becoming driven by technology, that this sort of the local nature and application of local communities is real and has never been more evident. Let me, let me emphasize that by asking you two questions. Mm -hmm. Number one, what time is it in Delhi? And number two, what's the biggest news story in, in Nairobi? Now, there was a time that we wouldn't have any idea, but anyone with minimal access to the digital world can now answer both questions. Uh, now, now I'm going. Uh, believe me, I'm I'm getting I'm getting to uh, inclusive capitalism. There's a there's a many different voices that uh, we that talk about globalization. And may I suggest that one of the greatest dangers to communities, uh, to local communities, is not globalization, but a retreat into isolationism and protectionism. Uh, the global economy, those people and organizations that are isolated and cut off are at a great disadvantage. Uh, they are targets of, uh, of nativists who, who feed on discontent by blaming outsiders and scapegoating foreigners and urging that barriers be erected to stem the tide of globalization. But, but if communities retreat into isolationism, they are unlikely to solve the very problems that have led to their discontent in the first place. Ironically, the best way for communities to preserve their local control is to become more competitive globally. It is my opinion yeah. that we solve our macroeconomic problems by solving our local economic problems. Uh, this is the this is based upon the concept that all economics are local and are primarily uh, primarily driven by the individual consumer. It's in a digital world that this is a primary assumption. Uh huh. Uh -huh. Uh, it, it's it's uh, again. I think the next blinding force of the obvious will be the egalitarian nature of that change, that the effect of technology on globalization for multinationals and local businesses is changing everything. And not just the things that we've sort of touched on, but it's changing everything. The global businesses must begin to think differently about every thing that they do. I think that's, uh, a, that's a great that's point, and that's a major point. The global businesses 
must think differently and not only about certain things, about almost everything to do because the processes, the systems, the method to do, they are all changing. So, Jar, we'll continue, we'll take a short break, we'll be back shortly. You're listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. We have with us JR discussing the global business in digital age. JR, you made a very profound statement. Um, uh, global businesses must begin to think differently about everything they do. I totally agree with you. And that's the key to success for global businesses in future. I'll let you continue from there. Yeah, let's 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 take that and and uh, think about this egalitarian impact of this technology sort of infusion into all parts of the world uh, by looking at the the effect of uh, the effect on uh, capital impact. You know, contrary to popular opinion, it isn't it isn't the lack of capital uh, that is the real barrier to economic stability in a lot of uh, local economies around the world. It's actually where the capital goes when it gets there. You know, foreign aid to governments in developing countries is based on a conventional thought that uh, poor countries uh, consistently benefit from capital from rich countries. Now, now, this is more of a wish than it is an actual fact. Uh, more likely, what we found is that capital given to local entrepreneurs create jobs, economic growth, ultimately even improvements in in governance this is what the digital revenue revolution is doing capital given to predatory government bureaucracies often reinforces the centralization of authority and strengthens vested interest i think that the ramification of these global changes has implications on both global and local businesses in, 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 in developing, undeveloped, uh, and, and developed uh, uh, markets. Let, let's, let's, let's think about as corporations, for example, go into, go into uh, local markets around the world. First, just don't sell. Do things in those, in those places. Uh, build factories there. Invest locally. Create jobs. Uh, uh, secondly, uh, 
partner with small entrepreneurs that, that are there that might be able to be suppliers or, or help with logistics. Uh, uh, procure things locally. There's, there are certain processing and service components that, that, uh, that you can get in those local markets. These kinds of moves are always profitable moves. There's to be re- reduced costs and expand markets. Those kinds of things are always profitable. When it comes, when it comes to local communities, as I, as I said uh, before the last break, uh, they really must determine how best to connect to the world business. Uh, and and to create a, a sort of a, a civic culture that will attract and retain uh, these mobile companies. Now, this egalitarian view really stems from a baseline uh, ideology. That's the exclusive capital that we talked about. Uh-huh. You know, this ideology challenges the basic neoclassical economic thinking and holds that the economy is a constant, evolving, interacting network of highly diverse households, firms, banks, regulators, and agencies. Inclusive capitalism begins with the thinking of the economy as a complex, dynamic, open, non-linear system that is has more in common with an ecosystem than it does with the sort of mechanical system of the neo classical model. Well, I think, Jay, you're absolutely right. Is all these things which are constantly evolving, as you as you just said, and these are all facilitated further by digital economy, by being openness in the economy, by being connected, by being changing things for betterment always and every time and very fast. You think you're doing something very, very nicely today and certainly you find in digital economy somebody has found still a better way to do it using the new technology. Yeah, there, there is, there is disruption everywhere, isn't there? Uh, right. in, in these uh, technolo- technological worlds. Uh, so, uh, th- this, uh, the, l- let me give you one little uh, quote from uh, our alma mater, uh, from the Side Business School, in a, in a uh, little report they put out in uh, in pursuit of inclusive capitalism business and approaches to systemic change. I'll just read this one little thing, and then I want to take a, a, a real a couple of minutes uh, on talking about what's, what's, the, what's the next changes in this whole age. Uh, it, uh, they said, the role that businesses play in society and the expectation about the role it should play has shifted dramatically in recent years. Called to a higher purpose, or sensing that externalities can only be ignored at their peril, many businesses are increasingly open to the notion that they have a responsibility for creating more inclusive economic systems. Driving that is, as we talk about the digital world, I suggest that our conversations about inventory systems and smartphones and communication systems are just pretty emblematic of the end of the third phase of the Industrial Revolution. Now, I I understand that that statement itself takes a little bit of unpacking. So if you allow me, let me try to go through that quickly. As I understand the Industrial Revolution, it has seen three distinct waves over the past few centuries. Uh, the, the staging of the sort of pre-industrial society over the 
previous two, three uh, centuries, created an environment uh, that uh, created conditions that are environmental, political, uh, uh, commercial, that have birthed this sort of changing ethos, uh, the Industrial Revolution. The first part of that revolution uh, uh, introduced steam power and and uh, mechanized production. Right. The second part of that revolution introduced uh, electric power and mass production. Now, the third part of that revolution introduced the digitization of technology. Now, that is what I might suggest where we are. And let me say this now, as I as I bring this to a close, I think this idea. Uh, some currently argue that there's a fourth stage of the Industrial Revolution, and some say it's already begun. Uh, German economist Klaus Schwab declares that now a fourth Industrial Revolution is building on the third, the digital revolution that has been occurring since the end of the last revolution. That is true. Yeah, it is characterized by a fusion of technologies that is blurring the lines between the physical, the digital, and the biological spheres. And uh, let me give you just real quickly, uh, this, is, this is this idea of the Internet of Things, this IoT that I, I, I mentioned earlier. Right. Uh, the first part of that is that there's lots of things. <laughs> there's lots of connectors now. You know, uh, they're 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 in homes, in cars, on freight trains, in in medical equipment, in on refrigerators, for example. Right. Uh, you know, uh, this is a stage where it's all about cheap sensors and, and cheap chips. Uh, the eye beacons are little pieces of plastic that are twenty that are $15, $20 uh, that are about an inch square that contains sensors and wireless transceivers and a little bit of memory, and they they contact and transmit information to devices that are close to them or, or are fed to other devices. you got things like Tesla now has a little has a little uh, sensing system that will make their, their electric cars be autopiloted soon. You have little temperature sensors on buildings that that tell you what the difference in climate is at different points of your facility so that you can optimize your HVAC system. The next thing that happens is they get more uh, of these uh, analyzable pieces of information that are extracted. You get this mountain of data uh, that, uh, that began to uh, that began to come together that you have to analyze and and uh, these f- sensor feeds everything from uh, uh, from uh, your refrigerator to places like the New York air brake uh, they make auto they make uh, locomotive parts uh, they have they have sensors on their valves and hoses and cylinders and they check for uh, 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 tonnage and vibration and track conditions, and then finally, all this information has to be used, and it has to be used as a basis. Uh, here, here it comes, Mahesh, mm-hmm. as a as a basis of changing the way that we'll even do business. That'll be more based upon the data from this kind of technology. Um, 
there, there's a, there's a, here's one quote by a guy named Glenn uh, uh, Almendinger. He's a researcher for Harbor Research. He said, there is no section of the economy where there aren't billions of dollars trapped in inefficiencies. Look at the, the way the PCs in the 1990s improved uh, office productivity. The impact of IoT will be many times greater. You know, we're at the very beginning of this digital world, and uh, those things that we talk about today as, uh, as cutting-edge stuff and, uh, in global business uh, will be accepted principles and even, and even thought of as yesterday's news. There, there are still big things in store for global business in this digital age. I think you, you said it very well. That's the spirit. It looks like, JR, that global business and digital age are kind of soulmates and are bound to create tremendous growth and opportunities for the global communities. And, uh, and the efficiencies are going to go up. Uh, the productivity is going to go up. The speed of getting things done or things happening and improving would be tremendous. So we have a lot of things to look at. And uh, anytime you think you know uh, something, it becomes obsolete very quickly. Probably that's going to happen in future. So, Jeff. In fact, it's probably obsolete when you think about it. That's true. So, thank you. Thank you, JR. Thanks for joining uh, uh, the discussion today. Very insightful. Have a wonderful day. 